Well, good afternoon. Thank you for sticking it out, the few, the proud, the many. Democracy is a great system, and it's better than anything else in the world, but also you recognize that the deficiency of it is your vote counts exactly the same as the person who uh, doesn't go to conferences on government, as the person who spends less than five minutes researching who they're voting for, as people who don't like churros. <laughs> you know, in our country, even people that don't like churros are still allowed to vote. And it doesn't, I don't think it makes any sense. But let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. I know... Uh, Pastor Steve is preaching through Matthew right now. So I was going to do the Mark's version of this uh, to say out of Matthew, but Matthew's version just has a couple words in it that are, are important. So I thought I'd stay with Matthew. And then somebody said, you know, Pastor Steve won't be to Matthew 22 for another, I don't know, three presidential elections. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like we're okay then. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to look at verses 15 down uh, through verse 22. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll begin. God, we are grateful for your word, which is living and active. I'm thankful for Darren and the way he's been leading us. Thankful for Pastor Steve and his message a few minutes ago, uh, the encouragement um, to look forward to the future for your soon return to earth. We long for your kingdom that you'll establish. Um, God, we're thankful for his uh, reminders for us to trust in you. See the boldness even that he brought out from the, uh, the apostles that were willing to, to suffer and preach and um, put the, their faith in your future uh, work on this earth to establish your kingdom. With that in the back of our minds, Lord, prepare us to read uh, this passage and understand it better this afternoon. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps one of the most significant events in church history took place in 410 AD. It was 410 when raiding armies from Europe uh, took control of Rome. That event marked the end of the, en- the end of the strongest nation probably in world history. The Roman Empire had ruled the world for 600 years at that point. I, by contrast, how old is the United States? What, 250 years? Uh, 600 years the Roman Empire had lasted. It had conquered not just the Mediterranean basin, although it had done that, but its authority stretched up into England. It stretched down through, uh, in, even into sub-Saharan Africa. It stretched through the Middle East, what we call today the Middle East. It stretched all the way to India. It took over such a massive part of the world. Its fall sent shockwaves to the rest of Africa, Asia, and civilized Europe. And immediately after the fall of the Roman Empire, the blame for its demise settled on Christians. It was essentially universally accepted that Christians were to blame for the plundering and the sacking of Rome. Now, you have to trace the logic out to understand why Christians were so susceptible to that charge. For hundreds of years, Christianity had been essentially illegal in the Roman Empire. Christians were persecuted, and Rome was at its strongest. And yet, in the 4th century, the early 300s, Christianity uh, became legalized. Constantine had converted, um, whatever language you want to use for his so-called conversion. I'm not saying you'll see him in heaven, but I'm definitely saying that he uh, called himself a Christian. He baptized his soldiers. He baptized those that he conquered Um, And he took the mantle of Christianity and persecution of Christians essentially stopped as Christianity became institutionalized. Constantine led, had authority over the church, calling church councils to sort doctrinal conflict. Church councils that we would say produced very good and helpful and and godly responses were under the authority of, of Emperor Constantine. It was when that happened that Rome was weakened and Rome eventually fell. This regarded the, the major view in the Roman Empire was that when we were serving the Roman gods, we were strong. When we stopped serving the Roman gods, we faltered. The way the Romans thought, it wasn't so much they started serving Jesus and that led to our downfall. Because remember, the Roman pantheon it was big. In a sense, it was like Catholicism. You could add any gods you want to into it. 
as long as you measure the sincerity of your worship by your adherence to it. So Romans weren't necessarily upset that Christians worshiped Jesus. They were more upset that Christians rejected the worship of the Roman pantheon, the other gods that had been uh, served the Roman Empire so well through the centuries was their logic. And it was once we stopped worshiping them, we of course fell. Well, Augustine is pastoring in North Africa at the time in the Roman Empire, and he wrote uh, what is probably the most influential book in church history on the role of government called The City of God. Um, The City of God is actually a collection of like 14 books, um, and it paints uh, the chronology of the Roman Empire into two different categories, two different cities, the City of God and the City of Man. That's why the title of uh, my book is exactly that, uh, Kingdom of God, City of Man. Somebody asked, where's the book on the City of Women? Blame Augustine. Uh, He's the one that divided uh, the history of Rome between the, the city of God and the city of man. He called them both cities. The city of God, and I think it's starting around book 11 of the um, city of God. Uh, book 11 or so is where he starts this contrast between the two kingdoms. Most of the books of, this, of the, uh, the city of God, most of those books are basically making fun of the Roman pantheon. They're making fun of the Roman gods, how they contradict each other, how they're so weak and fickle. And he's exposing the logical inconsistencies in the argument that if the Roman gods are able to protect their people, shouldn't the Roman gods have been able to secure their people's own worship? Like he's basically, he's mocking the Roman gods. But he gets to a substantial point towards the end of it where if you look at the Roman gods and how, how fickle they are, you can compare them to Jesus. The city of man is then going to be fickle. The city of man is going to rise and fall. The city of man is going to be easily offended. The city of man is going to be like the Roman gods. The city of man will be marked by jealousy, materialism, greed, anger, uh, vice, and envy. All the, all the sins of the Roman gods are going to be played out in the city of man. In contrast, all the nobility of Jesus Christ and you know, his... Uh, straight uh, his steadfastness his straightforwardness like the strength and eternal uh, solidarity you can have with Christ that's going to be seen in the city of of God the city of God is not going to be fickle it's going to be an eternal city and so he's building up this paradigm for you to view the world through two different lenses he writes in there the city of heaven is eternal and will therefore never fail God's people Augustine points out dwell in both but they cannot and here's the here's the key phrase from Augustine that bothers American Christians. Augustine says that the Christians or the God's people will be citizens of both kingdoms. And we're with them on that point, right? We're like, yeah, I get it. I have an American passport, but I'm a citizen of heaven. I get that. I vote in our elections and I, I vote in our church elections. Like I'm on board with it. I'm there. But Augustine then goes on to say that Christians cannot be blamed for the success or the failure of either city. And that's the part that rubs people the wrong way. Augustine points out that heaven will always be victorious, regardless of how people in the city of God function. The city of man will rise and fall, and Christians are not to blame. Now, I say it bothers Americans because we so easily buy into this logic that I talked about last night, that if only the church would wake up and take our country back, then we could right the wrongs. And the reason so many bad things are happening is because Christians don't wake up and get out there and vote. There's always this tendency inside of every group to blame the group for political failure. Like, you know, even inside the Democratic Party, they would say, if only the Democrats did things better, then they could have beat Trump. And inside of the Republican Party, there's always this idea, if only the Republicans did things better, then we could have beat Biden. There's always that, that mindset that you look internal to your own party to criticize it. Well, that's true, especially with Christians, where they say, if only Christians would have done X, Y, or Z, then we could have kept our country from the spiral that we're in now. But Augustine rejects that, just flat out rejects it. And he says, and here's, here's the part that again rubs many Americans the wrong way. Augustine makes this point that the rise and fall of the city of man is disconnected. That's his language from the city of God. In other words, God appoints nations to rise and fall, period. And there is nothing you can do to speed it up or to slow it down. It's happening in God's timetable. And that's just a little bit further outside of our control than we like. <laughs> We, we would rather say like, no, no, we, we, we believe the, the line, you know, democracy, if you can keep it. We would rather say, no, if I try hard enough for civic virtues and elections and all this, then I can keep the, our version of the city of man alive longer. 
Well, Augustine's book sparked probably the most consequential theological debate in world history. Uh, I mean, it basically leads to the advent of the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church wrestles through the city of God, that book, and, and their lesson from it is that the city of God should be in control of the city of man. That the city of God or the kingdom of God, however you want to say it, should have authority over the kingdom of mankind. And that's the way to ward off any future downfalls. Of course, the Roman Empire is in just chaos as it continues to dissipate from the 400s all the way to the 800s. It's not until the 800s where the Holy Roman Empire kind of kicks in. And that's where this experiment is put to the test. Can the Pope exercise authority uh, over not just the, the Church of Rome, but over the whole Holy Roman Empire, all over all the, the shambles of the Holy Roman Empire had become, all the different countries and language groups that begin to develop. This is where all the different languages are split off. This is where the Dark Ages come in when Charlemagne's ordained the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire Christmas Day in the ninth century. That really launches you into the Dark Ages. But that's the experiment. Can the church hold sway over the city of God? That becomes, I mean, over the city of man, that becomes uh, probably the most consequential debate on this topic in church history. As I mentioned, many people wrongly assumed that the church, that Rome fell because the church wasn't in control of it. And this leads to the Catholic doctrine called Two Swords Doctrine. I did mention this Friday night, but I know many of you weren't here in Catholicism. The Two Swords Doctrine is the idea that one person, in this case the Pope, holds the swords to both kingdoms. One person has oversight of the church and of the kingdom of man. This is often uh, displayed in this kind of image or this kind of graphic or seal. You see in an image like this, the two heads of the bird indicate the two kingdoms, the two swords. One is the sword of, of military conquest and the other is the sword of the sacraments. And both of them fall to the same person, even in this kind of graphic. And there's, uh, you know, so many different drawings or logos that are like this. Even in this kind of graphic, you see the two kingdoms that are portrayed, the two ways of advancing them versus military conquest and the sacraments are both portrayed. But it's one person with one crown. See the one crown on the, on the, the head? The guy's got two heads, but he's got one crown. That's the two kingdoms that are one under the one authority. It's the kingdom of man that collects taxes and enforces laws. That's the state. And it's the kingdom of God that oversees the sacraments. And in the doctrine of the two swords, they are best merged. The army would bear one sword for law and war, and the church would bear one sword of the sacraments. This is why the soldiers had to answer for priests. This is why the whole thing is under the authority of the the pope. And this symbol is not just in Catholicism. This is the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, even the Anglican Church. This is why the queen or the, the king is uh, the head of the Church of England. Um, it's part of a religious statement, but more than that, it's a statement that the two are merged together. Now, in practicality today, the king doesn't actually exercise authority over the church, the Anglican Church, over the Church of England. But just that title that he is the, the keeper, the guardian of the Church of England goes back to the doctrine of two swords. Now, how do Christians respond to that doctrine? Well, we would say not two swords, but two kingdoms. Christians generally, I think a robust Protestant political theology is to adopt the view of two kingdoms rather than two swords. In the doctrine of two kingdoms, there are two different kingdoms in this world. There are two different cities, in other words. And every believer does have dual citizenship. And sometimes those cities overlap, but the citizens of both kingdoms owe allegiance to their respective kingdoms, which call on them for allegiance at different times. You are supposed to fight for your country and pay taxes for your country and obey the laws of your country you know, contingent on all the things we talked about earlier, as part of your occupation in the city of man. But you owe an ultimate and a different kind of allegiance to God as part of your citizenship of God's kingdom. And the two kingdoms are not under each other's authority. This is the separation of church and state. One does not rule the other. And the idea of a separation of church and state is not an American invention, but goes back to this kind of Protestant political identity. Now, in the two-kingdom theology, we would say both of these kingdoms do indeed exist under God's authority. God is sovereign over both kingdoms. When we say we believe in two-kingdom theology, we don't mean by that that God is only sovereign over the church and not over the governments of the world. As I mentioned earlier from Romans 13, he is sovereign over both. But God has two streams of his authority. He has his revealed word, and he has the common grace of morality. 
And his revealed word tells Christians how you ought to live. It is given to you, a man, how you ought to live, to, to walk humbly and to love justice and to do mercy and to walk in a humble relationship with your God. The Bible tells you how to live. That's the clear and explicit revelation of God, and that governs your conduct as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, God, through common grace, convicts people of sin and establishes government to regulate the world, and that's kind of natural law. And that's this kingdom of man. The kingdom of man exists under natural law. That doesn't mean it exists independent of God's word and God's law. And that's the prophetic voice where the Christian can call people uh, into account for their sin. It can confront sin, even sin that goes beyond the boundaries of natural law. Christians can take the word of God and call people in the kingdom of man to repent of their sin because God has authority over both kingdoms. But the point is there are two streams of authority. One is the form of common grace, which is seen in the kingdom of man, and the other is the form of the word of God, which is the authority in the church. And this is why Christians do things like protest injustice, like renounce abortion or the Holocaust of slavery and and, and abortion and other immorals like that. We can call those things sin and wrong and tell people to repent because we have the clarity of the word of God without trying to bring the two kingdoms together. And I think we often understand this. You're citizens of the world as far as your political identity goes, as far as your passport goes. You land at LAX and the shorter line at LAX is for American citizens. And you wait in that line. You don't get confused and be like, okay, that line's shorter. But I'm a Christian, so I have a different citizen. Where's the line for Christian citizens? Do they have a different line? No, they do not. So you wait in the American line because you recognize that's your earthly citizenship. Paul leveraged his earthly citizenship when he appealed to Caesar. Paul asked if it was right to to whip a Roman citizen. It's okay to take advantage of your earthly citizenship. That's fine. That doesn't contradict with your kingdom citizenship. You recognize that you exist in both worlds. You exist in both worlds. Now, essential to the doctrine of two kingdoms is that the kingdom of God exists on earth, but can only be advanced through conversions. This is the new covenant reality. The only way to grow the kingdom of God is through conversions, through sacraments, to use the old Catholic language, that when somebody is baptized into their faith in Christ, they're adding a citizen to the kingdom of God. We reject infant baptism, which adds people to the kingdom of God apart from their own volitional conversion. We understand as in the Baptistic tradition, the kingdom of God is made up of of believers who have turned from their sin and embraced the offer of the gospel, and they do so volitionally by their own free will, that nobody is born into the kingdom from a man's perspective. The only way to be born into the kingdom of God is through regeneration, the new birth. And for the new birth to be a good means of advancing the gospel in this world or the kingdom of God in this world, conversion has to be free. It has to be in accordance with God's law, which calls people to repent and believe the gospel, not through compulsion. And the the city of man doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. This is why Baptists are always out of sorts. Uh, And this is why the uh, early um, uh, reformers were so anti-the Baptists. Because they're existing in this two-sword theology. Imagine it was messing up in Zurich. It's messing up Zwingli. When the Baptists come and say, no, we are citizens of the church by our own conversion and our own free will. And in the, you know, Zwingli's mind, the government is made up of the authority of the church. You can't opt out of your earthly citizenship because of your own free will. You can't say, I choose to follow Jesus, so I'm not paying taxes. I choose not to be a citizen of your country, not to be subject of your laws. I'm using my free will to opt out. Governments don't work that way. Write a letter to the IRS next time you pay your taxes and say, Dear sir, I recognize your authority to collect taxes. However, comma, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I am exercising my own free will to not embrace my American identity. Love, Pastor Steve Swartz. (laughs) Uh, Governments don't work that way. Same in the Old Testament. Imagine somebody trying to opt out of the Sabbath laws in the Old Testament. Uh, Hey, that person's picking up firewood on the Sabbath. Oh, no, you don't understand. I've chosen to not believe the Sabbath. Okay, we're going to stone you to death. (laughs) That's how that's going to play out. So you recognize that the two kingdoms, not only do they have different streams of authority, they're advanced in different ways. It's a different mechanism to become a citizenship of each 
1. So that's all in the background when we jump into Matthew 22. So much of our two-kingdom theology could be developed from all over the Bible, the new covenant reality, and yet it's so crystallized here in Matthew chapter 22. I want you to walk through beginning uh, in verse 15 with me. The Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle Jesus. How to entangle Jesus with his own words. Why are the Pharisees doing this? Because Jesus, this is Passion Week. Jesus has arrived in the temple. He he turned over the tables in the temple earlier. He shooed all the, the false teachers out and the money changers out. He did this the week of Passover, which is the biggest shopping week all year long at the temple. It'd be like ridding the, the mall on, on Black Friday right after Thanksgiving, and you do a sit-in at the mall then. You know, people might let you block the malls, of the, the door of the malls for some random protest any other day of the year, but try it on Black Friday and you will get tased. <laughs> it's all over. And that's what's happening here. There, Jesus shows up at the temple and turns over the tables in Passover week. Then he comes back again the next day and begins teaching, and there's massive crowds listening to him. The temple was built by Rome in order to pacify the Jewish leadership and by their compliance. Remember, the Jews had revolted against Rome repeatedly. Herod uh, comes into the throne and he has Jewish ancestry to him. And he's the one that is ruling over Jerusalem, Herod the Great. And he basically makes a deal with the Jewish leadership that he will build them a better temple than they've ever had before. He will let them use their own currency there. He'll let them have their own government there. That's the Sanhedrin, the 70 Jewish leaders. In exchange, they're going to be paying him a tax uh, every year to recognize, to demonstrate their submission to Roman rule. And it's actually an uncanny compromise. It allows the Jews to have their own culture and their own customs and their own quasi-government all they want to their heart's content. And it allows Herod to say, no, I'm ruling them with an iron fist and to tell Caesar they're all under subjection. And to prove it, they give me a coin every year with your face on it. I mean, these people are obviously in subjection to you and they get along. And that's been going this way for a long time, decades. It's been going this way. That's where Jesus shows up and all the people are surrounding him, listening to his teaching on the steps of Herod's temple. And the Sanhedrin feel threatened by this. He already shut it down a few days ago. If this keeps up, they feel like they're going to lose their temple. They come up to Jesus to trap him back in chapter 21, and they ask him, who gave you the authority to teach in here? Which is just a funny, funny question, isn't it? Excuse me, Jesus, who signed your permit to be here? You know this is a permit-only area. And Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you who signed my permit if you tell me this one question. By whose authority did John the Baptist minister? Did he get his authority from God or from your permit police? Which one? And that put them in a no-win situation, remember? If they said, oh, we gave him approval, then Jesus would say, well, why didn't you listen to him? If they said, well, God gave him approval, well, why didn't you listen to them? If they say nobody gave him approval, then the crowd will turn against them because the crowd loved John the Baptist. So they're stuck. That's in chapter 21. If you look at chapter 21, verse what, like 25, they discuss it among themselves saying, if we do this and this, and so finally in verse 27, they say, we don't know. That was their best answer. We don't know. We feel trapped. We don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I don't know by what authority I do these things then. There you go. Neither of us know. Let's mind our own business. Well, the Sanhedrin retreat, and they conspire to how to trap Jesus. This won't go on. Jesus, by the way, says, I don't know, and then proceeds to tell a, a series of stories that all make the Sanhedrin out to be evil, wicked murderers. Um, <laughs> and it is, it is actually really funny. Because at the end of the stories, the Sanhedrin, it says, they perceive that Jesus is telling these stories against them. (laughs) Good job, boys. (laughs) So they conspire on how to trap Jesus. Uh, They all get together in verse 15 of chapter 22, the Pharisees, and they plot how to entangle him in his words. They realize they can't just kill him. They're going to try that in a few days. But for now, they're going to try to catch him in his own words like they tried to do earlier. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. There are actually three groups of people that are sent to him. They're all, it's all one group. They're all plotting to catch Jesus. But it's the, it's the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Together they make up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council here. And that's a huge oversimplification. But remember, the Pharisees were fastidious. They were religious leaders. They enforced the religious rules. They enforced the Sabbath restriction, the kosher laws. Everything for them was clean and unclean. The Pharisees hated 
created Rome, but they're operating under this system of the temple because they get their religious authority. Everybody gets stuff out of this. You know, the Sanhedrin lets the Pharisees do their stuff because they're keeping everybody Jewish. The Roman Empire is letting the Pharisees do their stuff because they're paying their taxes. So it's all working out. That's one part is the Pharisees. The Herodians are part of this. That's the Jewish people that loved Rome. They're called the Herodians. They're the party of Herod. They were in favor of Rome. They were the pro-Rome party. Uh, They were in favor of Rome. They don't really buy into the Pharisees like Sabbath restrictions and clothing restrictions and dietary restrictions. They go along with that, of course. They're not going to try to overthrow that because part of it is keeping them in good relationship with Rome, which is what they want. The Pharisees don't like Jesus because he says he is the Savior and he doesn't follow their rules. The Herodians don't like Jesus because if he says he's their king, he'll overthrow Rome. So neither the Pharisees or the Herodians are cool with Jesus for opposite reasons. And those two groups hate each other, by the way. But they have a common enemy right now in Jesus. They're going to partner with Jesus. And the third group is the Sadducees, who are always Sadducee. Oh, man. It was worth it just for that. The Sadducees, they don't believe in any of this stuff. They don't believe in the resurrection. They barely believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in much of the Old Testament law and the prophets. They are kind of uh, shoestrap hanging on here to the whole Jewish system. That's the three groups. These groups, again, have nothing in common. If they ran into each other in the street, they would fight each other. But they're all partnering to trap Jesus in his words. And we don't have time to go through all of Matthew 22, but it is so interesting that they all have different approaches to how to trap Jesus. The Herodians are going to try to trap him with taxes to Herod. Typical Herodian play. The Pharisees are going to try to trap him over the greatest commandment. Those lawyer Pharisees are going to ask about the ordering of the law. What a Pharisee question. And the Sadducees, who don't even believe in the resurrection are going to ask Jesus a story about a woman who has seven husbands and which one is she going to be married to in the resurrection. All three of their questions are so flagrantly hypocritical. They're so flagrantly hypocritical Um, because all three of their questions come from a heart that doesn't seek truth. They're all predicated on believing the opposite of what they're asking for. The Pharisees, they don't care what Jesus says the greatest commandment is. Like, they have that stuff figured out. The Sadducees, they don't even believe in the resurrection, much less who this woman that they just made up is going to be married to in the resurrection. And the Herodians definitely are not honestly curious about whether or not it's okay to pay taxes to Herod. Are you kidding me? They are called the Herodians. (laughs) Anyway, they're going to go trap Jesus. And all three of these questions present Jesus spins. They're all very local questions, like a random hypothetical lady. Can we pay this one tax this one time of the year? They're very, very precise questions. Jesus answers them in three timeless ways. Like Jesus blows the doors off of all three of these questions and gives you truth that tells you about the resurrection for all of us, gives you truth that tells you about how God is at work through all of his law, Genesis to Revelation, how we should order those commands, and gives you truth about paying taxes, whether or not you're in a democracy or in a theocracy or in a a monarchy. Jesus' answer describes political theory for every culture in every nation throughout the New, the New Testament. It's really insane how Jesus' short answers just destroy three massive worldviews in the, in the Israelite culture. Um, it, it, a thousand sermons can be preached in this chapter, but we only get half of one for the rest of this. <laughs> so they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians in verse 15. Uh, in verse 16, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anybody's opinion, and you're not swayed by appearances. Okay, do they know any of those things? Like, do they actually believe any of those things? Of course not. They don't believe a single word of what they just said. Not a single word. This is all just buttering up. Oh, Rabbi, you are the smartest and the handsomest. You know, a Jew would be crazy to not listen to every word you say. And notice how they're trying to set the trap. Their goal is to trap him in his words. They say that. So they're trying to set him up to not care about what the crowd is going to think by saying, we know you would never change your answer based upon the crowd. You know, this is my 
kids who go and ask their mom, can we have ice cream after dinner? And, and mom says, no. And they're like, but is daddy in charge of the household? You know, that question does not come from like a strong complementarian. You know, they're not, that question doesn't come from a, a long word study in Ephesians 5. And they've just really ironed this out that I'm the final say. No, no, no. But then they'll come to me and like, oh, Father, we know that you are ruggedly handsome. We know that you don't care about anybody else's opinion and you will always render the right verdict no matter what villainous mother said a few seconds ago. You wouldn't take that into account at all because you only do what is right, oh, Father. That's their th- light into the fi- to Jesus. Now, does Jesus see through this? Of course Jesus sees through this. He doesn't think that Herodians are actually impressed with his integrity. They just lay this whole trap out for him. Tell us then, oh dear rabbi in verse 17, tell us then, what sayest thou? What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That long lead in, they just drop the anchor on his foot. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? This is a super loaded question, isn't it? Because if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful, this is insurrection. The Romans will probably kill Jesus. If he says it is lawful, the Jews will turn against Jesus and see him as, an, you know, as aiding Roman occupation. The Herodians are probably hoping for that because they like the Roman occupation. So this is one of those questions where it seems like there's no good way for Jesus to answer One answer will turn the Romans against him. One answer will turn the Jews against him. Uh, Both answers would would end his ministry for sure. Now, the tax they're asking about is a very particular tax. Um, The tax they're asking about is one that they have to pay every year. By the way, the Jews from Galilee don't have to pay it. Because they don't fall under, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split. The Jews from Galilee weren't subject to this tax. Only those that, that were uh, left in Jerusalem and Judea, those are the Jews that have to pay this tax. So Jesus, by law, doesn't have to pay the tax they're asking about, by the way. Which makes the question even more, at a complicated, a totally different level. Um, because he, does, he wouldn't be paying it in his own anyway. Um, and they have to pay the tax with a particular coin, the denarius, which is, uh, you know, they didn't have the gold standard. A denarius was what a day's labor, a day's day laborer wage would be. So, you know, the guy you hire in the Home Depot parking lot to work in your yard for a day, what do you pay the guy? A hundred bucks, 150 bucks, whatever. That's a denarius. So they're not asking an insane amount of money. They're asking about a particular tax. And what bugs the Jews about this tax, and it started in 680, by the way, so this tax has been around for 30 years or so at the point of this conversation, uh, what well, bugs the Jews about this tax, tax, remember the point of the tax is to demonstrate to Rome the Jews are in subjection to them. So they have to pay with a particular coin that has the face of the Caesar on it. At this point in time, it's Tiberius Caesar. It has his face on it, and it declares Tiberius Caesar, who is divine, the son of the divine Augustus. This is the language that's on the, on the coin. It's to be printed, his face on one side and this on the back side. Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusta Filius Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So it's claiming that the Caesar is himself the son of God. And it's signed off with this declaration, Pontifex Maximus, which means the high priest. By the way, this is just trivia. Do you know when the Pope joined Twitter? He took that at his, as his Twitter handle. I mean, I'm all into conspiracy theories, but that one's right out there. The Pope's Twitter handle is literally Pontifex Maximus. Anyway, add that to your list of reasons not to become a Roman Catholic. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that's what's on the coin. And so they ask, are you allowed to pay this coin? It's blasphemy. It's calling the Caesar the son of God and the great high priest. Are you kidding me? Plus, the Jews didn't like the images that are on it. They rejected the idea that you could make images of things in heaven or on earth. The face of the Caesar claiming that he's the son of God checks both of those boxes. With his origin in heaven and he's on earth. So the Jews hated this coin. And man, could you imagine what would happen if Jesus said, yeah, there's nothing. God doesn't care about images. God doesn't care about somebody calling himself a son of God. No big deal. 
Or could you imagine what would happen if Jesus said, yeah, this is totally outlandish and Jews in good conscience shouldn't, shouldn't pay this? He would be trapped. And that's the question they ask. This gives you the warning, though, to fear the hypocrite. The warning that Jesus gives here is to fear the hypocrite. Remember that this question is designed to trap Jesus. This is so often the way the city of man works. People in the city of man will ask questions and try to lead you to conclusions to get you to uh, you know, side with them. They're not actually interested in the truth. So much of the city of man is about hypocrisy. People are, get angry at politicians like, politicians are such hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. Well, no kidding. It's the city of man. It's literally the city of man. I mean, you don't get more city of manish than politicians. And I agree, godly people should be politicians and can make a huge impact in society. There are good and godly politicians, but you have to recognize even the best and godliest politician is still operating in the city of man, which is fine. We all live in the city of man. I don't mean that even negatively against them. As much as recognizing that you've got to have just the ethics of the city of man are going to be categorically different than what you would find in the church, or at least they should be. You see that right here. These people are so-called religious leaders, but they are seeped in hypocrisy, are trying to trap Jesus by asking if it's lawful, the Herodians, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The whole thing's absurd. But verse 18, Jesus, it says, was aware of their malice. That's a great word in the ESV. He's aware of their malice. He knows that they're not asking because they actually want to know. They're asking because they're evil and wicked people. And he's going to answer them accordingly. Notice in verse 18, he says, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? That's not a very winsome answer, is it? Come on, Jesus, you keep that up. Nobody will listen to you. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? A hypocrite is the person who puts on the mask. They're obviously putting on the mask. Oh, teacher, you're so good and noble, and you would never let the crowd change your opinion on anything, and they take off the mask. Should you pay taxes to Caesar? Rawr! Max back on. And Jesus sees right through all of it. He says, your whole thing is ridiculous. And he's going to explode their worldview in a second. So first, beware of the hypocrite. Second, you have to live in the city of man. You have to live in the city of man. That's where Jesus goes with this answer. He says in verse uh, 19, show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. Even this little detail in here is very important. Jesus is not excusing the blasphemy on the coin. Notice that in this scenario, Jesus does not have the coin in his pocket. He's not carrying it around. He's not the hypocrite here. And he, he exposes that by asking them. He did not need to ask them for the coin. He did not. He knows what's on the coin. The people know what's on the coin. He could have got the coin a thousand different ways, including grabbing the closest fish and taking it out of his mouth. I know that because he's done that trick before. <laughs> he intentionally asked them, could one of you fetch me? One of you people, one of you Herodians who are so concerned about the integrity of you know, the, the images in the coin, could one of you grab me the closest coin? Like, oh, here. Oh, I just walked right into the trap. <laughs> That's what he does. He hand me a coin. And so one of them brings him the denarius. You know it's the particular tax that he's talking about because verse 19, he uses the article, would you show me the coin for the tax? This is a specific tax they're talking about. They brought him the denarius. That's what they're supposed to pay for the tax. And Jesus asks for them, whose image or whose likeness and inscription is this? He's asking a question he knows the answer to. Everybody knows the answer to that. And they said, it's Caesar's. It's Caesar's picture on the coin. And he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, obviously, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Matthew 28, 18 says that. Every earthly country is under the authority of God. 1 Corinthians 7 says that. 1 Corinthians 7 says that countries will rise and fall. They're the daily concerns of mankind. God reigns over all of them. In the meantime, until the Lord comes back and puts an end to these earthly kingdoms, Jesus' teaching makes sense. In the meantime, as we wait for the Lord to return, all authority is under him. All the nations report to him. In that meantime, you're a citizen of the kingdom of man. Go ahead and pay your taxes. Give to the government the things that belong to the government. That's the point. 
Jesus establishes that right here. And he does so in a way that really subverts the Herodians also, because he does it in a minimalistic kind of way. We'll look at that in a second. But he does it in a way that subverts the Pharisees, who would not be okay with this answer. And he does it in a way that's helpful to us as Americans 2,000 years later. He says it in a way that makes you pause and say, okay, the most obvious question, what does belong to Caesar? What belongs to Caesar? I made a little list for you. You could come up with your own list, but these are the things that, that I come up with. The New Testament teaches you that belong to Caesar. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is his, what do you own? Romans 13, verse 1, obedience. We looked at that earlier today. That's not a blank check of obedience. Of course not. As I mentioned in the session earlier, there are limits on that. Government is functioning according to its design. You obey it. When it steps outside of that, there's other reasons to maybe obey or disobey. But just the bottom line is generally the government's owed obedience. It's owed submission in Romans 13 too. It's owed your taxes in Romans 13, 6. It's owed honor in Romans 13, 7. And honestly, those honor is sometimes harder to give than taxes, isn't it? You've seen the videos of people that pay their taxes in pennies. Yeah. Here's 10,000 pennies. Let me watch you count this out. That's so tempting to do sometimes. Like pay your parking ticket and 2,000 pennies. <laughs> Not very honoring, I suppose. It's the only thing that keeps me from doing it that way. <laughs> Honor. Romans 13, 8 is love. That's harder still. You have to actually love. Somebody asked last night, is patriotism okay? Yeah, but you, if by that you mean love of nations, love of your own nation? Yes, of course. First Timothy 2, verse 1, you're... You owe Caesar prayer. You're supposed to pray for him. And also in 1 Timothy 2.1, you're supposed to be thankful for him. Actually thankful for the government. Why would I be thankful for the government? Rawr! Because they check evil. That's why. They check evil. Even in an evil, depraved society, the government is still checking evil. So be thankful. They don't catch every crook, but they catch some, which is better than None. And so if you're not doing the things in the list right here, you're sinning. I mean, Jesus answers the Herodians in a very clear way that you should do these things. You should be able to give thanks to God for the country you live in. And if you can't, you're sinning. You should be able to pay your taxes. And if you don't, you're sinning. And if you cheat to get out of your taxes, you're sinning. It doesn't mean you should pay the most taxes possible. You know, if you have uh, things you can um, opt out of, or if you have things, what deductions is the word I'm looking for. Take your deductions. Of course, take your deductions. The government gives them to you. Take them, of course. But if you cheat or lie on your taxes, then you're sinning. If Jesus could command these Jews to pay taxes to Rome, the, this poll tax or this, this tax to demonstrate their subjugation to them, then you can pay the taxes that you owe. That's the way Jesus answers the question. And it would definitely be frustrating to everybody who wanted to trap him. And had he ended it there, it still would have been a very good answer. But he doesn't end it there. He keeps going. In fact, he goes to the final point. You're supposed to live in the city of man, but you're supposed to worship in the city of God. Jesus says, give to Caesar things that are Caesar's. And then he carries on, and to God the things that are God, that are God's. Well, how, how are you supposed to do that? Notice Jesus answers this trap that the Herodians, the government party, the pro-government party came up with this trap. And Jesus answered the Herodians' objection in a way that minimizes government. He tells them, yes, pay your taxes, which is the answer they probably wanted to hear. Yes, pay your taxes, yes. But he answers even that in a way that makes government out to be so small. Give government whatever it needs. This is face on a coin. Go ahead and give it back to him. Like you barred it, give it back. Isn't that such a minimalistic way of answering it? whose face is on it, go ahead and give it back to him. It's such a diminishing way of answering it, especially when it's in contrast to the things that are God's belong to him. The government can keep your cash, Jesus says. What are you living for? You living for money? Government can keep it. It belongs to them anyway. You don't get to take it with you when you die. Is that what you're living for? It belongs to the government anyway. It's got its face on it. Your, your currency says basically property of the United States government or some such thing like that. It's got a president's face on it that ain't yours. You know, an alien comes and asks you how much money you have and you show him your money. He's like, can you prove that it's yours? It doesn't have your face on it. The ID does not match. That dollar bill belongs to somebody else is the point. And Jesus says, that's fine. It all, it all perishes anyway. Give it to them. In contrast, what belongs to God? 
Earlier, the obvious question is what belongs to Caesar? Give it to him. Uh, The subsequent question would be what belongs to God? Whose image and likeness is in God? Well, certainly people are. People are made in the image of God, obviously. So something that's in the image of God belongs to God. In the same way, the coin belongs to Caesar. Anyone in the image of God belongs to God, including the Herodians. The Herodians were okay with paying taxes to Caesar. They were not okay with rendering to God the things that are God. And here they have God incarnate in front of them, demanding allegiance, demanding worship. That's the very thing they won't give. They thought they were laying a trap about taxes. Jesus responds to a trap about worship. They're back to the John the Baptist question again. Are you going to worship the one that God sent you to worship? You're so concerned about tax rates. Forget that. Will you worship the one that stands in front of you as God in human flesh? And they can't answer that question. They don't want to worship God. How are, they, how are you going to answer that question if you don't want to worship Jesus Christ? How do you render back to God what's his without going through his son. This is why verse 22, when they heard this, they marveled, they left him and went away. They couldn't say a word. They just got slapped upside the head. They huddle back again and regroup and try the silly question with the woman with seven, seven husbands. They're just trying to trap Jesus. None of it works. By the way, they go away, conspire against him again. Do you remember they finally arrest him? Do you remember what they charged him with at trial? saying, this man said we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. That's what they charged him with. It's, that's not even like a misquoting of him. That's the opposite of what he said. He literally said, pay taxes to Caesar. And like, we're hearing you say, don't. And they charged him with it. Found him guilty, sentenced him to death, turned him over to the Romans and killed him for it. They weren't interested in the truth. They turned the truth upside down. They pretended like the problem was in rendering to Caesar, but the real problem with the Herodians' heart, the real problem with the Pharisees' heart, the real problem with the Sadducees' heart, the real problem with the human heart is the refusal to give to God the love and respect he's owed. You want to draw two columns in your mind? Don't literally draw it in your paper. Just think, two columns in your mind. What belongs to God and what belongs to man? I'll tell you, the list that belongs to man is much smaller than you might think. I had to work to get the ones on the last screen. The list that belongs to God is comprehensive. Comprehensive. Notice the change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament for Israel, the worshiping of, of God and the paying of taxes was one and the same. They couldn't be extricated. Not in the New Covenant era, not in the New Testament era. They are extricated. There are two different kingdoms in the, new, in the New Covenant world, in the New Testament world. There is the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. You do live in both kingdoms. You do have to pay your taxes in one and worship God in the other. You understand that. Those two circles overlap way less than we, than we think. Sometimes we make it as if every encounter with, with government or every encounter with God is in contrast with the city of man. Not always. God made the world in a way that, generally speaking, we can mind our own business in the city of man and worship God with a clean conscience to the city of God. But we recognize there are times where they conflict. And of course, our allegiance is ultimately to the city of, of God over the city of man. This is why the Herodians and why the Romans and why all governments usually reject this Christian philosophy. Because it, even in our obedience, it elevates God over government. Even in our obedience, even in our paying of taxes, we do so in a way that elevates God over it. If they thought Jesus was going to advocate overthrowing Rome, they were mistaken. Not only is he not going to overthrow it, he validates Roman rule. How far Israel had fallen by this point? In the Old Testament, as I mentioned, there was one kingdom. Now there's two, and they can't get either of them right. Don't miss that God and Caesar are the two most ultimate realities of our world. Today we say there's only two things certain, death and taxes. They, would have, they had the same Jewish expression. In the Jewish mind, there's only two things certain, God and Caesar. Notice that Jesus speaks in a way that puts him in authority over both. He claims the authority of God and he subjugates Caesar to himself. And instead of setting loyalty to God and to Caesar in contrast or in opposition to each other, the straightforward meaning of Jesus' words is that you can maintain loyalty to both at the same time. That's the normal way the Christian life should play out. He bids the proud Pharisee to not refuse his dues to Caesar. He bids the worldly Herodian to not refuse his dues to God. Christianity was not designed by Jesus to interfere with the government, but to transform souls throughout all governments. 
And that's the way we live today. We are part of two kingdoms. And those two kingdoms don't have oversight of one another. The church doesn't oversee government. Government doesn't oversee church. They both coexist. One should not threaten the other. Yes, if the government tells you to sin, you disobey man and honor God. Yes, if the government says silly, ridiculous things, you decide in case-by-case basis whether to obey or not. But the normal experience between the two should be harmony. That's for the time being. In the future, Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on earth and reign over the kingdom of man in person, incarnate, from the flesh, reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's in the future. But in the meantime, we wait for that to happen while being citizens of two kingdoms. Scripture makes it clear we live between both ages, doesn't it? We're stuck between the future kingdom of God on earth and this intermediate time right now where kingdoms of man vie for our authority. But we realize that ultimately, we owe loyalty to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Government, in the meantime, is designed to protect worship, to protect food, to protect family, to protect life. But God oversees worship, oversees our conscience, oversees our life, oversees our conduct. You know, all these questions, I'll just end with this. They keep asking Jesus questions. I mentioned them earlier. They keep going, but jog your eyes down to the end of the questions. Jog your eyes down to verse 41 of Matthew 22. Three questions into this thing. They tried every question to trap Jesus and notice how Jesus ultimately responds. <laughs> After the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees ask questions, Jesus says, okay, my turn. Verse 41, I got a question for you. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's Jesus' trick question. Notice how deftly Jesus answered their trick questions and then he asked one for them and, and they, they can't answer They don't know what to do. They say he's the son of David. And Jesus says, well, if he's the son of David, how come David calls him Lord? Look at verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They gave their best shot three times. He has one question for them. He swats their questions to the cheap seats. And then he has one question for them. And they're like, we're out. (laughs) And run away. God, we're grateful for your word that tells us that you are the son of David in your humanity, descending from King David in the line of Judah all the way down to Mary. We recognize that you're also the son of God. David called you Lord. You have two natures, your humanity and your deity. In a sense, that prepares us to understand that we are citizens of two kingdoms. A human kingdom, we have presidents and law and branches of government and whatnot. And a heavenly kingdom, where our Lord Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. Lord, it takes wisdom to live in both. It takes wisdom to navigate these. We pray that you would bless us with that wisdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.